0: Okay, over the last few months, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. You may be familiar with them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This morning, we're going to read from the final verses of Mark's chapter 6. It's uh, the writer of that, the disciple Mark. He recounts what's probably a familiar event to you. That's Jesus' walking on water. I think we've all heard of that. This miracle, by the way, is not to be confused with Alan Ferrer's golf swing. It sometimes skips across the pond many times, like it's walking on the water. But it's not, and it rolls up to the green. And we all look at that and say, Alan, how'd you make that happen? And we giggle at it, and we say that was a Jesus shot. Better lucky than good. Anyway, there's all kinds of jokes about that. And I appreciate me, uh, Alan letting me poke fun at him this morning about that. But anyway, thank you for not going down the path of, of too many jokes. What we're about to read, of course, is more serious. It's from the Holy Scriptures, what we call the inerrant Word of God. It has no errors in it. You can trust it, right? It's reliable. In his revelation to mankind about himself and about us, the words will be up on the monitors. So this is the word of God. It's from the gospel of Mark again, chapter six. It begins at verse 45. Immediately, and that's Jesus, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray and It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. The word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, as we look together at your word, we ask that you would settle our hearts, that you would allow us to see your goodness in this story. And by your Holy Spirit, teach us And change us according to your wisdom and mercy and love. So, God, that we're better people once we depart this place. Better wives, better husbands, better neighbors. All to your glory. Amen. All right. As some of you know, I like to to put sermons into perspective for context. What we have here this morning is a a bunch of weary men, right? Twelve weary disciples. These guys had been wanting a sort of retreat, a rest of sorts, a bit of rest from the crowds and the mission work that they had been doing. But instead, while sailing to this remote part of Galilee, it was a region in Israel, they got interrupted by a huge throng of people. They met them on the beach as soon as they landed. This was a big crowd, by the way. A bit earlier in the chapter, we learn about that this crowd numbered over 5,000 men. And so Jesus, in his compassion, he saw them like a sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them. He actually began to teach them. This day it got late and it became time for supper, for dinner. And rather than dismiss the people to the nearest coochies, as I teased the kids earlier, Jesus fed these people from a measly five loaves of bread and two little fish. Not big white tunas that could fill restaurants, right? These were little fish, probably from a little boy's lunch that we read about in another book called John. We suspect that they were probably like two little dried sardines salted for this little kid's lunch. And out of those two small fish and five small barley loaves, over 5,000 men were fed. Anyway, after this miraculous feeding, Jesus, he sends away his disciples. That's his inner circle of disciples, actually, these apostles, he calls them. He tells them to sail away to the other side of the lake. This is not a geography lesson, but you should appreciate that Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, about eight miles wide. So even if they cut a corner, this is quite the journey, right? They're gonna have to 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 get there. It's gonna take some time to traverse this, uh, this waterway. And given the headwinds that they encountered throughout the night, it was no surprise that they hadn't even made it to where they were headed nearing dawn, right? So they had been oaring and sailing all night long. We know this because Mark, tells us in verse 48 that Jesus was up in a mountain. He was praying. He saw them. He could see them looking down. And it says they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now some info that might help you think through some of this. The Gospel of Mark, it was originally written to the early Christians in the church at Rome. Okay. And so he's free to use what I would consider to be Roman tradition, which his audience would certainly understand. And so the Romans, you see, they carved up their night into four periods, four, um, uh, four three-hour periods, which began at dusk and concluded at dawn. And so this fourth watch, we should see it as somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., so that would mean about the fourth watch or the last part of the night, that would mean that Jesus encounters these men somewhere around 3 a.m., 4, maybe even closer to 6. But the point is they're already tired. Okay, they've, been, they've been rowing or working their sails all night. And I consider that perspective. I don't think that when we read Scripture we should miss the human element in it. These are men, sinful, normal, sleeping, awake men they're exhausted which reminds us to remind each other i'm going to take this advantage or this uh, opportunity to let you know and remind you what you already know it's not a good idea to make important decisions in the middle of the night when you've been stirring and can't get back to sleep wait wait until the sun's up and maybe wait until you've had some coffee before you make those decisions because our minds tend to catastrophize in the middle of the night it's not a good time to make life-changing decisions and should tell you for crying out loud don't text right don't tweet don't send any emails out in the wee hours chances are you'll regret it in the morning just let it sit all right as we look at this passage we need to establish our bearings that's always a good idea so that we don't go outside the bounds of foundational truths right the best way the right way to interpret the scriptures else we run the risk of drawing wrong conclusions. So let's not forget that we're studying a gospel. It's a record it's a, it's a, it's a message, it's a record from the perspective of Mark, which is very much hinged on the Old Testament. Mark starts off his gospel in his chapter 1 by telling us that the time is fulfilled I don't want to disparage any Bible's translation, but I will tell you the NIV version, the New International Version of the Bible, which is in our pews here, it says the time has come or the time is now. That's not really a good translation. The Greek word is fulfilled. History, all of the time since the fall of man in Genesis, all of the history that's been looking forward to the Messiah is now fulfilled in Jesus and this man Christ meaning that Jesus is the sum and the substance of the gospel. He's the Messiah, as I said, the Christ. He's the Son of God. Okay? He's all of that, all that was promised in the Old Testament. We mustn't lose uh, that insight as we look into the various pieces of the life of Jesus that's recorded for us in the New Testament. And so when people ask, and they did, who is this man? We ask that question today. Mark records these miracles for us so that we might know the answer to that question. That is really the primary reason for miracles in the the Bible, so that we know who Jesus is, so that we know that this man has fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had been pointing to since the beginning of time. The miracles are not recorded so that we can see ourselves somehow, so that we can help us identify where we are in the scriptures. They're not I don't want to say they're not for us. They are for us. But they're not primarily for us to see ourselves in there. Primarily about Jesus. And in that, for us to understand that he's the one who fulfills all of history. He's the one whose death secures reconciliation, our reconciliation, between a holy God and sinful man. And in all of that, Mark introduces us to him so that we might define our lives, so that we can see ourselves, not our jobs, or rather not by our jobs, not by our stuff, not even by our family, but so that we can see ourselves living defined in relationship to Jesus, to the one who feeds the 5,000, which we preached about uh, last week. To Jesus who walks on water, which we'll talk about this week. To Jesus who is the Messiah. To Jesus who is God incarnate, right, in the flesh. And so all of this, all of this gospel and the story about, uh, before us this morning, is about Jesus, the Christ. And once we discover who Jesus is, then we can see ourselves, our lives, as having definition in him. And our behaviors, we talked about with the little kids, and our purposes, everything we do is wrapped up in who he is, who that person of God is. So Edgemont, our time and our circumstances, all of history, the present and the future, all of it, cannot be understood without the Bible to interpret it. Now, why do I say that? Histories, present and future, right? All three aspects of time. I mean to include in that your history and your present and your future, your life's day-to-day routines and even your purposes, which, of course, we set as priorities. They can't have any real understanding and certainly no lasting meaning, no right meaning anyway, without an understanding of your creator without knowing his desires and his will for you, without knowing his character that we're supposed to reflect because we're his creation. We were created in his image. We're supposed to reflect that image. That's what that silly Ten Little Ducks song was all about. And his purposes, to of course only the extent that he's revealed them in his scriptures to us, we're to do those things. And not because we're slaves, but because he loves us and those are good for us even though we might not understand that goodness. But as history, the Bible explains that we are broken. We've always been broken. Since birth, we've been broken. And as present day, our lives remain broken. Nations, not too difficult to look at. Nations are broken today. Governments are broken. And things, our jobs, our children, Our marriages, sex, relationships, health, and money doesn't fix any of it. Can mask it, can hide it for a while, but these pleasures cannot fix it. They can make you feel good, and they can make you feel successful, and they can make you feel comfortable, but they don't get to the bottom of the issue. And so if you die in that brokenness, then we're all going to die, but if you die in that brokenness... You're going to reap the reward of that condition. That brokenness, which is the result of sin. There, I said it, sin. The result of a heart that's corrupted since birth. We don't learn to be bad. We don't need to teach our kids to not go in the cookie jar. We don't have to teach them to lie, to be dishonest, to be deceitful. They do that on their own. We have to teach them honesty and truthfulness, and respect, and sharing. So the result of a heart that's corrupted since birth, and such a heart, it commits sin every day. Every day. That sin keeps you at an eternal distance from your creator. An eternal distance. There's no way for us to breach that or broach that on our own. And so above all things in Mark's gospel, including these verses under our study this morning, we should see that Jesus is the one who can fix sin. Or rather, fix us in regards to that sin. He's the only one who can do that. Not the only one. Now, you know, if I said that in another church, unfortunately in our USA, many might take offense at that statement. That Jesus is the only one who can fix us or fix this nation. Because implied in that statement, actually it's explicit, but I'll just say implied in that statement, nothing else can. No policy, no president, no leader, and certainly not your good works or being a nice person. That can't fix the brokenness. Nothing else contributes to getting well from that terminal disease of sin. And that makes Jesus exclusive. That teaches that there are not many paths to God. Our Eastern religions, I shouldn't say our, but the Eastern religions, liberal theology, it teaches there are many paths to God, many ways up that mountain, but there aren't, according to Jesus. I submit that's who we should believe. That exclusivity of Jesus to save, it teaches that we humans have a corrupt nature that not only casts us as basically bad from birth. Some people might say, well, you know, is the human basically good or bad? You know, we waffle at that over the water cooler at work. But the, the answer the Bible teaches us is that we're all born in sin. And so with regards to pleasing God and trying to become saved, there's nothing we can do from birth to contribute to that. It's all on his volition. It's all by his grace. We contribute nothing to our goodness or to our salvation. We're unable, we're impotent to do anything good insofar as that salvation is concerned. Outside of Jesus, we are unable to please God because if we're outside of Jesus, then we're outside of God, right? Jesus is God. And if we're outside, then at best, we're looking in. At worst, and I submit we are at worst, but at worst, we're enemies of him. We're not only strangers, but we're antagonistic to his truths, his precepts. And we're resistant to his demands to be repentant. And if that basic truth was declared in many of our socially respectable pulpits, then we run the very real risk of being labeled as hateful, perhaps racists, but definitely intolerant. In the next I'm sorry, in the text that we read some minutes ago, I don't know why Jesus took this approach of getting to his disciples out there on, on the ocean well, not the ocean, but the Sea of Galilee. He could have employed any transportation method he wants to. Make up your own. Imagine, you know, imagine he could have teleported. He could have flown. He could have taken his own boat. I mean, he's God for crying out loud. He could have done any of these things. He is superior over nature, he controls it. Instead, I think we'd actually be surprised if he sank. He's the creator of the universe. He's come down from heaven in the form of a man. And he is indeed fully human. He's 100% human. But he also has not lost his divinity. Not a drop of it. He's 100% God at the same time. He He did give up his glory in heaven by coming to earth. But he didn't lose his position as the son of God that second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe and all that's in it. And so this God-man, Jesus, is superior to nature. He made it, he's therefore in charge of it, and he can change it to do whatever he wants it to do. Wind and waves, be still. Withered hand, be healed. Eyes, blind eyes, now see little girl, arise from the dead. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And so on, right? Miracles. Supernatural acts, right? Supernatural. He's he's super, he's over nature. Verse 45, Jesus directs the disciples to leave. He tells them what to do. This is not a suggestion. He says, go to the other side. Now, why did he do that? Well, again, I think we're going to be helped to answer that by the account of the situation that is also told to us in John's gospel, chapter six. We learn there that people were saying this man, he's a prophet of God. Some were saying he's he's Elijah resurrected. They were making up other kinds of identities for him. But they were essentially saying, hey, now let's take him by force and make him our king. But that's not part of Jesus's plan. That just solves for externals, right? We're going we're to make him our king so that he can overthrow the Romans who are oppressing us. That's not part of Jesus' mission. Anyway, so making him a physical king to rule over a physical, uh, a physical Israel doesn't accomplish anything that Jesus wants to accomplish at this time in salvation's history. So it was time to get away from that place. And he tells his disciples, go away, get on a boat, go to the other side. Then later in verse 48... We're informed that the disciples were seen straining at the oars. I don't know if they're oaring or sailing, in a wind or whatever, doing both. They were having a rough go of it. And I want us to, to note that this predicament that they found themselves in, this difficulty, was not because of their disobedience. It was actually just the opposite. They did what Jesus told them to do. And yet, now they're struggling. So therein lies a lesson for us, I think. What the disciples find them up against, it saves us from the notion that obedience makes everything easy or makes everything relatively well for us. It doesn't. It makes us compliant. It makes us blessed, but it doesn't make it easy. Right. The Christian life is not all easy. That kind of thinking, if you were to think that way, that obedience results in zero problems or zero troubles, no sickness, no family strife. No unemployment? That thinking is the theology of the health and wealth clowns. There again, I said it. Those who claim that tithing and giving will give you a fat bank account, maybe make you a happy family. Not true. The disciples, they're struggling precisely because they're doing what Jesus commanded them to do. All right, now in verse 49, we're also told very matter-of-factly That Jesus was walking on the water. I'll read it. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, again, I don't think this should shock us. Jesus is the creator of nature. Again, he controls it, he can do whatever he wants with it. And so let's not apply human basic logic to this. He can overcome gravity. In fact, those of you who know your Old Testament really well, in 2nd kings chapter 6 i think we have a lot of chapter 6s tonight or today in today's sermon in 2nd kings chapter 6 the prophet of god in this case elisha he caused the head of an axe to float i don't know what it was made out of iron or steel but it was metal certainly heavier than water he caused it to float so that it could be found its owner was responsible for it he's like oh what do i do it's in the water it's sinking elisha caused it to float prophet of god an ambassador of God. So even the Bible's replete here with control over nature by God. And even in Job, you know, the Old Testament book of Job in chapter nine, it speaks of this ability specifically to our text this morning. Thousands of years later here in our Mark narrative, Job nine, verses seven and eight say, speaking of God, he commands the sun and it does not rise. He even seals up the stars and he stretched out the heavens alone and trod on the waves of the sea. There's an Old Testament picture thousands of years ago when it was written of what Jesus is now doing here on the Sea of Galilee. And so we ought not judge the Lord by our feeble sense of knowledge or our limited experiences, right? We have finite minds and yet he's infinite, We can question him, but we should trust him, for he is trustworthy. We should simply trust him for his grace. And that brings us now to a point of decision this morning where we're forced to really choose a path. Jesus has not left us the option of following him and something else. I am the way, he says, the truth and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through that same Jesus. Now, why is this? Because God has declared that there's no other atonement for sin that's acceptable to God the Father. Every other sacrifice, everyone is tainted with sin. It's marred, right? It's got a blemish on it. But Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This perfect Jesus is without sin. He died as the only possible sacrifice, the only one to reunite you with the Heavenly Father. And we need that reconciliation, folks. We need it. For all of us are born, as I said, separated from God. We're at enmity against Him because we're born sinners and we're in need of a Savior. I hope you get that. Everyone is damned to hell forever unless unless they get into God's kingdom, into heaven. But we're told right here in scriptures, the infallible word of God, we're told that there's no other way to heaven except by Jesus. John fourteen six, Jesus speaking of himself again, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The alternatives, eternal death or eternal life, harboring sin for which you're guilty, Or having Jesus forgive you. And he can do that. He's the only one who can do that. For in him is all authority. And he's he's the only one able to forgive sin. All right. It's coming up on the top of the hour. I'd really like to go on. I always try to end on time. I'd really like to address the fact that Jesus got into their circumstances with them. He did not pass them by. He responded to their call. He got into the boat with them and he said, don't be afraid. Take heart. And then the wind died down. Now, only Christianity does that. Only the God of Christianity comes to rescue people, right? He gets in the lives of his people and he lives with them. I'm going to close with a reminder that we have to recognize who Jesus is. That's the point of Mark's gospel, The identity of Jesus. We're not going to just acknowledge that. We're not going to just relegate him, this Lord of nature. We're not going to relegate him to somebody who can just cure our addictions, fulfill our hopes and dreams. Instead, we have to see that Jesus is the solution to this eternal problem that God has. How to justify sinners. How to justify them to remove their sin so that he can let them into his heaven. You ever thought about that? How can God be just and not punish sin? He can't. He's just. He has to punish it. Sin demands that punishment. So it has a penalty. So who pays that? Is it You? I hope not. If it is you, 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 don't, you don't have that kind of wherewithal. So you're paying for it for eternity in hell. Or you can let Jesus pay for it for you. He's the only one who can. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? He's the sinless one. All right, I think that's enough for now. The cross, the death of Jesus upon it allows you to start again, allows you to be born again spiritually, not physically, to be forgiven of your historical, your present, and your future (laughs) sin. Peter, he rightly declared to Jesus' question, will you leave me? Do you want to go away as well? Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall I go? To whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Gracious God, look upon us, we pray, for your mercy. Save us from ourselves and from our sin. Come and reign in our lives. We ask that you rule over us and deal with our brokenness. Forgive us, Lord, for trivializing the wonder of your dealings with this, with this wonderful miracle. We get so used to seeing these things or reading about them or hearing them. And so help us to honor you with the entirety of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.